Will you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3? 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at a passage there. We want everybody to be able to follow along. So these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention. And they'll get that to you. It's marked at 1 Peter 3. And we have an outline for the message. It's on the back of your program. So if you have that program handy, I encourage you to take that out. We'll be making use of that in just a bit. I had determined several weeks ago that I wanted to speak to our men on Father's Day from this passage in 1 Peter 3. I had preached from this passage on a Father's Day in the past, and so I looked back to make sure it wasn't too recent, and indeed, it was eight years ago. And since most of you don't remember what I say for eight days, let alone eight years, I thought we were good. But after I had committed to this passage for today, I remembered that we went through the entire book of First Peter just a couple of years ago, and so that, of course, included our passage today. So I say all of that to those of you who can remember a couple years back, if things sound familiar today. However, I'm told that my sermons are always much better the second time you sleep through them. The Bible is a book that's full of contrasts. Contrasts between good and evil, between right and wrong, light and darkness, believers and unbelievers, the church and the world, the list could go on. To put it another way, the Bible expresses the stark differences, the antitheses between the beliefs and behavior of Christians and the beliefs and behavior of non-Christians. The difference is to be seen in every sphere of life, from our views and use of money to our perspective on and engagement with the government, to our approach and attitude toward work, to our value of and purpose for relationships, and on that list goes. One of those areas of antithesis between the Christian worldview and that of the non-Christian worldview relates to position and authority. The world loves position and title and respect. They love it not for what it does for those who are in a subordinate position, those that they're called to serve. Rather, they love positions of authority for what it does for them. Jesus encountered this attitude when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago. And from his own first followers, no less, as they struggled to change their thinking from that with which they had grown up and seen modeled before them. Changing that to the radically new world order to which Jesus had called them. And we see this struggle in an exchange Jesus had with James and John. James and John, whom he had nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, due to their desire to make an impact, as they're always the center of attention. James and John approached Jesus, and the Bible tells us they said, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And then it goes on to say in that passage, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now, it may well be that the other ten became indignant because they wanted seats of authority in Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus says to all twelve of them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, when Jesus says that this is how the, he says the Gentiles behave, he's using the same word that is used in the key verse in the book of 1 Peter. It's in chapter 2 and verse 12. Take a look at chapter 2 and verse 12. It says, live such good lives among the the pagans. And that's the word for Gentiles. Live such good lives among the unbelievers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Jesus is saying that pagans, unbelievers, because of their radically different value system, have a radically different view of position and authority. They use it in a selfish way. Christians use it in a sacrificial way. This book of First Peter is written to encourage first century Christians who are indeed different. And they're experiencing suffering in the form of persecution precisely because of those differences. So how is it that they're to behave in everyday life in order to please God and show the difference that Christ has made? That explanation to that question comes in the next verse, after that key verse in chapter 2 and verse 12, verse 13 of chapter 2, focuses on various areas of relationship with which all those Christians would be involved. A relationship with government, with everyday work, and with family life. And in all of these, we're told that Christians are to display different attitudes so that the difference that Christ makes will be evident. So, rather than trying to overthrow the government or being disrespectful of it, since our citizenship is in heaven ultimately, we are to submit to those in governmental authority, even those who are wicked rulers. Verse 13 of chapter 2. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, and then goes on. And then likewise in the workplace. Rather than like the world being at war with your boss, talking about him or her behind their back and undermining their authority. Notice what verse 18 says. Slaves, you might substitute their employers to make it applicable to our day. Verse 18, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And then likewise, in the home as a wife, might have an unbelieving husband. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Now in all of these, in chapter 2 and verse 13, as it references government, in chapter 2 and verse 18, as it references the work relationship, and then chapter 3 and verse 1, as it talks about the home, all of them have this command to submit. And that word submit means to place yourself under the authority of one who is to lead you. Place yourself under the authority of one who is to lead you. Now, when we covered the instructions given to wives about submitting to their husbands in this passage in chapter 3, sometime back, the title of that message was, How to Become a Good-Looking Woman. Now, here's why. Because verse 4 of chapter 3 says, 
The beauty of a godly woman is found in the internal qualities of a gentle and quiet spirit rather than what they thought and what we so often think, that it comes from external artistry and sensual attraction. How do you look to the unbelieving world? And how do you look to that unbelieving husband? And most of all, according to verse 4, how do you look to God? Because these internal qualities are of great worth in his sight, says verse 4. But the passage in chapter 3 moves from how to be a good-looking woman to what I say in the title of today's message at the top of the outline that's at the back of your program. How to be a good-loving man. And that's because today's passage is addressed to husbands. And the best way to summarize what we're going to see in verse 7 is that husbands are called to love their wives rather than their authority and position in the home. Now, I remind you what love is. A working definition of love from Scripture, pulling all that it says, and it says a lot about love, and there are several words used for love in your Bible. But a working definition of love is this. Love is doing what is in the best interests of another. Love is doing what's in the best interests of another. So Christian husbands will use their position not for their own selfish purposes, but for the benefit of the wives that they've been called to lead. That's why verse 7 says this. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Let's ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for this grand privilege to be in your presence with your people in this sacred moment to open your word and to see the words of Almighty God there, your instructions to us, and in particular now, your instructions to us as men and as fathers, but by extension, all of us in relationship who are called to use those relationships, not first for ourselves, but for those that you have called us to serve. Help us, Lord, to see that and help us to become that because becoming that means becoming like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, the responsibilities of wives to husbands is covered in the first six verses of chapter 3. And then verse 7 deals with the responsibilities of husbands. So... Why six verses for women and one verse for men? Well, it's clearly because women are more sinful than men. Wouldn't you agree? The men all agree to that. Actually, the answer is found in the context that goes, as I've already pointed out, all the way back to chapter 2 and verse 13. And what Peter, who wrote this, is trying to highlight. In each of these three relationships that he's addressed between the citizen and the government, between the employee and the employer, and now uh, in relationships in the home. In each of those, he's focused on those who are vulnerable to mistreatment. So citizens are vulnerable to mistreatment by the government. Employees vulnerable to mistreatment by their bosses. And wives are vulnerable to mistreatment by husbands. And so that's the focus, and that's why that gets most of the attention. But lest anyone think then that it's okay for Christian husbands to mistreat their wives because it was common in the surrounding culture and, I might add, is common in our culture. Lest anyone have that mistaken notion, we're given this verse 
that though succinct is loaded with meaning and instruction. This is the main reason that in verse 7, the woman is called the weaker partner. It's not that she's intellectually inferior or spiritually inferior, but rather she's in the weaker, the vulnerable position. Now, the way this is translated, it indicates that husbands are to respect their wives, and you could read it like it's respect them for two reasons. One, because they're weaker, and two, because they are heirs of the gracious gift of life. But that phrase, as the weaker partner, should go with the command in verse 7, husbands, be considerate. And we'll see that that word considerate means to think about, to consider who they are. So it's saying, in effect, as you live with your wives, consider the fact that they're weaker. Now, how so? How are they weaker? Well, women are in the more vulnerable position. They are the weaker partner because they are physically weaker. Weaker. They are literally, according to this verse, the weaker vessel. Now, friends, no matter how we try to obfuscate that fact, it remains true. Women are generally weaker physically than men. I've taken great joy over the last many years of attending my daughter's high school athletic events. Lainey, when she was playing basketball, now Annie, who has one year left, who loves playing volleyball and softball. Not only do I attend their games, we've gone together to watch women's sports at the University of Michigan. There is some serious volleyball that goes down at Keene Arena in, in Ann Arbor. And we watched on TV as the U of M women's softball team made it to the championship series just a couple of weeks ago, lost in the final game. Now, that's some high-level sports, and if you put most men out there against those women, the women win. But if you put the scholarship men against the scholarship women in any of those physical sports, the men win. That's why they have separate leagues. It's why some of the schools still distinguish the men's and the women's by calling the women's teams the Lady Trojans or the Lady Titans or whatever the mascot name is. Women are physically weaker, but this is saying more than that. The married woman is vulnerable in the sense that they've entered a relationship in which they agree to submit to the leadership of their husbands. So what if he does not lead well? What if he does not lead in a loving way? She's vulnerable in that if he leads selfishly and in an arbitrary manner, making decisions without proper thought as to how it affects her, then she's going to be adversely affected. She's the weaker partner because in this relationship, she's the one in the vulnerable position. The focus of all of this instruction back from chapter 2 and verse 13 through chapter 3 and verse 7 has been to direct those in the vulnerable position. And to do it as a lesson to the church as a whole. The church as a whole, and especially at that time in the first century, was in a vulnerable position within the wider society. And so this is how you, church, are to behave as citizens and employees and wives as you live right in a world that's gone wrong. With that key verse that we saw back in chapter 2 and verse 12. So that they may see your good works and glorify your Father on the day that he visits us. The focus is on those who are vulnerable, but Peter includes some succinct but very important words for husbands too, who though we are in a position of leadership, are to use that leadership for the benefit of those who are led. Christian husbands do not use their position in the home for themselves, but rather to serve those they lead. So I say in your outline, 
Here's what a good, loving husband looks like. A good, loving man submits. A good, loving man submits. Again, verse 1, when speaking to the wives, says this, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Well, in the same way as what? Wives, in the same way, verse 1 says. But again, in the same way as what? Well, that's connected to the prior chapter, chapter 2. In the same way as what has been said from chapter 2 and verse 18 down to the end of chapter 2, verse 25. In the same way that employees submit to employers, wives submit to your husbands. And in the same way, employees... As citizens submit to their government, you submit to your employers. And so there's a connection all the way through chapter 2 and verse 13, all the way through these opening verses of chapter 3. Wives are to submit in the same way as employees and citizens. But then notice how verse 7, the one that's written to men, says, husbands in the same way. So the wives' requirement to submit is connected to The employee's requirement to submit and the citizen's requirement to submit. But then verse 7, written to the husband, says husbands in the same way. In the same way that wives submit like employees and citizens, you've got some submitting to do, men. And I'll explain that in a bit. How does a husband submit? How does the man submit in the same way? Well, you see a bit of this if you... Go back to a passage that many of you are familiar with. In Ephesians chapter 5, and you don't need to turn there. I'll put it on the screen for you. Actually, the guys in the back will put it on the screen for you. But in Ephesians chapter 5 and Ephesians 6, and in in that, that passage, there are a number of relationships that are mentioned there. Relationships between wives and husbands, between uh, employers and employees. This is what chapter 5 and verse 23 says. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. But then the next chapter talks about, just like Peter does in our passage, the relationship between employees and employers. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. But the passage also speaks to husbands. But with husbands, it doesn't say submit. It says, husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, here's what's key with that. You look at that and we men say, Well, it says for me to love my wife, but she's the one who's to submit. I don't have anything or anyone to place myself under. But don't be so quick with that. Because when this whole section starts for these various relationships that are given in Ephesians 5 and 6, it starts in verse 22 of Ephesians 5, which says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then the next verse says, Wives, submit. And then there are different relationships that are dealt with in the following verses. What follows that verse to submit to one another is how each group mentioned is to submit a wife by placing herself under the head leadership of her husband, a slave by obeying his master. Now hear this. And a husband submits by loving his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. A husband submits by loving his wife. The way a husband submits to his wife is not by submitting to her leadership, not by placing himself under her authority, but by lovingly placing himself under her needs. 
But that means you got to know what those needs are. And so a good loving man, I say in your outline, submits. But secondly, a good loving man learns. A good loving man learns. If it is the case, men, that we are to place ourselves under the needs of our wives, that's the way that we submit to them. It means then that we've got to learn what those needs are. And that's why verse 7 says, husbands in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Now, that seems redundant to say as you live with your wives. I mean, if I'm, if I'm married, then assuming I'm not separated physically because of some prolonged employment issue or I'm in the military or something, then, of course, I'm living with my wife. So why not just say be considerate to your wives? But it says be considerate as you live with your wives. Well, why is that? Because the phrase as you live means this, as you make a home with your wives. Husbands, you're in the business now of being considerate as you make a home with your wife. It's kind of like a a schoolhouse in which the lessons that we're going to talk about take place in the home. This learning takes place in a homeschool, so to speak, environment that husbands are to engage in. So when verse 7 says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate. We usually think of that as someone who's being kind or polite. So-and-so is a considerate person. That's included. But the word translated be considerate actually has to do with what we know about our wives. It's literally live with them according to knowledge. So husbands, if you're going to in the same way place yourself under the needs of your wife, wife, That means you're going to have to know your wife. You're going to have to live with her in an understanding way. So I say, a good loving man learns. And here's what he learns in your outline. He learns about women in general. He learns about women in general. One preacher has pointedly highlighted three of what should be obvious differences between men and women. Men and women have different biological makeup. I've already alluded to this. But he says that biological makeup provides a great deal of difference between the way we behave and the way we function. We could discuss many aspects of that. But let me share with you one little known fact about the biological difference between men and women. Data compiled by a professor at Georgetown School of Medicine shows that on average women have 20% fewer red blood cells than men. It's the red blood cells that distribute oxygen throughout the body. Therefore, by their physical makeup, women tire more easily than men do. It means that women are more susceptible to fainting than men are. Now, men, that means knowing knowing women in general. If you're, you're married to a woman, then you need to know women in general, and you need to know that. And so that means a whole list of things, but it means you cannot drive your wife like a drill sergeant. It means that you need to structure rest into the schedule Of your household. I am bothered greatly. When I see and hear indications of men. Men in our church. And the way they seek to drive their wives. And show their displeasure when their wife doesn't meet up to this drill sergeant standard. That they have laid for them. Men it ought not be. We live with our wives in a considerate way. That is consider who they are. Consider who they are just as women in general. There are these biological differences. But it's also patently obvious that men and women generally have different patterns of communication. 
In general, when men communicate, usually there's an objective in mind. (laughs) And reaching that objective is the most important part of the communication. The point of a man that a man is trying to reach might be something as simple as the punchline to a joke, something as complex as instructions for a task. But for men, the objective of communication is primarily the transfer of information. Now, while it is a fact that women can and, of course, do communicate that way, often for them, the most important aspect of communication is the process. The process of communication is the expression of relationship. It's time shared with one another. It's interaction. It's a time to be together and just share what's going on in one another's lives. And so, men, when you come home from work, your wife is wanting to share relationship. You might be the only adult she's spoken to all day. And yet, our response, and I admit my own response, is sometimes then to, to cut that off and to just say, what, what, what are you communicating about? Get to the point, and we'll exchange information. But for a woman, it's more than that. And the third difference is men and women have different perspectives on life. It's safe to say that men and women have different priority lists. Many examples of that could be given, but take shopping as an example. A shopping trip for a man is generally a time to conquer something. Don't bother me with coupons. The list says milk and bread and butter, and I am on a mission to kill milk and bread and butter. And I have a sack that I will bring those home in, and it will be a trophy for me because I have conquered the task. There they are. I've got them. I have captured them, and I'm out of here. But often for a woman, shopping's an event to savor. Yes, I need milk and bread and butter. But what's on sale over there? And who might I meet in the aisle over there to talk to? I mean, really, really, just for for a moment, just think about the fact that women often will go to the restroom in pairs. Like if you're at dinner with a couple and one is going through, the the wife might say to the other woman, I'm going to the restroom, would you like to go? I have never, ever in my life said that to a man. And if a man ever said that to me. (laughs) We have to learn about women in general, men. And so I ask you, have you learned what's important to your wife? You may not always understand why it's important, but it's important that you deal with it, even when it's something as simple as communicating why an item on her priority list needs to be moved up your priority list. Or you explaining why I can't do it right now, but expressing how important it is to you that it's taken care of. So you learn about women in general. Secondly, in your outline, a good loving man learns about his wife in particular. The characteristics of women in general, but then your wife in particular. She's one woman among many with unique gifts. What are those gifts? Do you know what those gifts and passions are? Do you encourage her in those? Honey, I see this in you, and I see you do this over and over again. And it's amazing to me that you're able to do these things. She has those unique gifts. Do you know what her unique goals are? Goals for herself. If you have children, goals for her children. Her struggles. 
What are her, your wife's struggles? Physical struggles. I've been amazed over the years how many times that I do premarital counseling with a young, vibrant couple. And then shortly after they get married, often the wife develops some kind of physical malady, or at least that physical malady comes to the fore. And it's, it's a real thing, and it, and it slows her down, and it slows them down, and perhaps for the period of their engagement, they've been going full bore and doing all kinds of things, and now she can't quite do all of, of those things. She's got this physical struggle. Are you aware of that and sensitive to that? What are her spiritual struggles? The unique things that tend to beset her, that tempt her, whether with the use of her tongue or the use of her time or just in her own internal thinking that comes out in those quiet times that you have together? What are her frustrations that you could help her with? Now, ladies, as I go through that, that list could go on. We don't have time. But if your husband cared about those things, your husband asked you about those things, it would be a marvelous thing indeed, wouldn't it? A good loving man learns about women in particular, women in general, his wife in particular, and I say thirdly, he learns about his wife for life. Because this is not just a, a one time, okay, Brown said we are supposed to sit down and talk about you for a bit. <laughs> I've got 15 minutes, let's get this over with. So what are your frustrations? What are you struggling with? What can I help you with quickly? But rather, we're doing, this, we're doing this for life. This is written in such a way as to be an ongoing thing. And if you think about it, that makes perfect sense because the things that our wives need, that we need to know about in order to effectively love them and place ourselves under their needs, those things change in different phases in life. So this is not a one-time conversation, yep, got it. But rather, in different phases of life, those things that a wife is frustrated by or needs or struggles with will change. And so, men, we need to ask. And we don't often ask for evaluation of ourselves. How can I help you? How am I not helping you? Part of the reason we don't ask for that evaluation is we don't really want to know the answers because it may involve the need for us to change, which implies criticism of what we've been doing, and that hurts. But guys, it is absolutely necessary. In the past, in our, in our church structure, many of you know that we have home groups that meet in homes throughout the area. We call them community groups. And those are led by, by different men. And we have given out anonymous questionnaires to those who participate in those groups, asking them how the group is functioning and asking them how the leader is leading. Now, I'm a leader of one of those groups, so that happened for me. And I can tell you it is uncomfortable because you don't know what folks are going to say. And they have the cover of anonymity. And so they're going to say what they really think about how you're leading it and how the group is going. It's uncomfortable, but we deemed it necessary. And the men who, who lead those groups deemed it necessary. And we learned some valuable information. But hear this. We'll only do that kind of thing when we care more about those we serve than we care about our fragile egos. We'll only go to our wives and say, tell me, if I care more about her needs than I care about my ego. Now, I've mentioned to you men in the past that there are a set of questions 
in the very excellent book by Lou Priolo called The Complete Husband. The Complete Husband. Wives, that would be a great Father's Day gift for your husbands. We have some copies in our resource center. But there is a list of questions in that book for husbands to ask their wives. So men, I would encourage you to take a look at that book. Or if you're too cheap to buy the book, email me. And I have a list of the questions that are in the book that I can email back to you. A good loving man submits. He learns. Thirdly, a good loving man respects. Respects. Verse 7 says, treat your wives with respect as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. This means, men, that our wives are every bit our equal by virtue of having been made in the image of God and being remade in the image of Christ in salvation, and thus an heir with us of the gracious gift of life. But this equality is not only about position, because respect means honor. And of course, we don't brag about the fact that she's she's a Christian. But it's underscoring our equality, because given our roles of leadership and fellowship, leadership and submission, that could become easily distorted. And so as you respect her, respect her, honor her as a person. I've counseled, my wife and I have counseled many women who will say to us, I don't feel cherished. I don't feel cherished. So men, how can you, with your words and with your actions, cherish your wife? Again, the book is chock full of suggestions for that. But men, at the very minimum, think about your words. And use those words in an edifying way. Edify means to build up. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouths, but only that which builds up, edifies others. So men, we think about the words that come out of our mouths and how how they either build up or tear down our wives. And our words to our wives ought to be filled with those things that edify, build up. And honor with your actions, prioritizing her. Prioritizing her needs, prioritizing her schedule. Now remember, the phrase, as you live, is as you make a home with. So focus men on home and the value of her work and her accomplishments there as you honor her in what she does. If she's a woman who works outside the home, please understand that as the physically weaker partner in this vulnerable position, and she's working outside the home, what a very difficult task that is. And yet, all the while, she has in her mind the things that she needs to get done at home or is trying and can't get done at home. Honor her and encourage her as you make a home with her. The Bible says in Titus chapter 2, Mature Christian women should urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, be self-controlled and pure, be busy at home. That is, even if you work outside the home, home is your headquarters. And a woman knows that and therefore feels that pressure. Be busy at home. Be kind, subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. She is, you've heard the phrase before, a domestic engineer. So men give her the run of the home, in effect. You know, we men act like tyrants for our own selfish whims. Even extending to the way the the house ought to be operated or the way the furniture is arranged. I've known men like this. 
It ought not be. Give her the run of the home. Supply her with what she needs to make it a home and a sort of workshop for her. A good loving man submits and learns and respects. And then lastly, a good loving man heeds. Heeds. H-E-E-D-S. Heeds. Heeds what? Heeds the warning at the end of verse 7. Do all of this, husbands, men, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now you think about that. What that passage is saying is that there is a linkage between the horizontal, our relationships with one another, and the vertical, our relationship with God. And that if we do not give proper attention to these horizontal relationships, in particular this one between husbands and wives, that it affects our relationship with God, that nothing would hinder your prayers. So, guy who comes to church and talks the lingo and acts spiritual. If you ain't spiritual at home, don't act like you're spiritual at church. And this shouldn't surprise us, because remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled. Then come and offer your gift. This is Jesus saying there's this connection between the horizontal and the vertical. Get that right. Then come back. Further, we should not be surprised that there's this connection because, remember, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God. Vertical. You and God, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment, but the second is like it. And notice what Galatians chapter 5 says about that second command, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. That's how tight that connection is. That Jesus could say that the first and greatest commandment is to love God, but then Paul, who wrote Galatians 5, can say the entire law is subsumed on this horizontal plane. Why? Because according to the book of 1 John, you cannot love God if you don't love others. So we can't act like it's all right with God if it's not right in our relationships, and in particular, our relationships in the home. Now, I started out by saying... That love is doing what is in the best interests of another. And giving that as a working definition of love. And so I say in your take-home truth this. We glorify God. That is, we fulfill chapter 2 and verse 12. Do these things that follow in chapter 2 and verse 13 all the way down to chapter 3 and verse 7. Do all of these in your relationships so that... You're living these good lives among the pagans and they may glorify God in the day he visits us. We glorify God when we love those who are weak. In particular, when we love those who are vulnerable. Then we glorify God. Men, I pray that on this Father's Day that we will contemplate what God has called us to do and with whom he has called us to do it. Our wives, who they are, Unique as women, unique in their particular person as our wives, that we are learning of them both now and in an ongoing way so that we can emulate the character of God, glorify God by doing what is in their best interest in their weakened, vulnerable position. Let's bow together before the Lord.
Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to open your word, to be challenged and for me to be convicted by looking into the mirror of your word, seeing your holy standard, and then seeing where I, who I am and what I do. Oh God, we thank you for showing us that, loving us enough to show us ourselves, but we thank you that you are a forgiving and a merciful God. Apart from your mercy, we could not stand. Lord, you have called us, you, you, you love us in a way that's better than unconditional. Your love is better than unconditional because you refuse to leave us where we are. You tell us and show us where we are, but you do it for a good purpose. You wound in order to heal. You show us our failure in order to help us succeed. Father, as your men, we want to succeed in our relationships, and in particular, in our relationships with our wives. And so I pray by your spirit, you would help us to indeed heed what we have heard from your word. And help us, Lord, to make changes in our relationships. For some of us, that means seeking forgiveness for our selfishness, for our harshness with our words. But Lord, may you be glorified as we do that. And then as we begin to change our behavior and to cherish this wife that you have brought into our lives, to see her as the gift of God that she truly is. Well, Lord, I pray that that would happen in homes throughout your church. And as a result of those homes being strengthened, the family of God, your church is strengthened. And as a result, we together are able to move forward, bringing glory to you as your church. I pray that today would be a day of encouragement, but also challenge for all of our men moving us closer to the image of Jesus. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.